The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Containment, that is China's framing. It obviously harkens to the Cold War, uh, which a lot of third countries, especially in the developing world, do not want to hear. It sounds very aggressive and mean. And, you know, I don't mean to be dismissive. I think in some ways it's actually quite accurate. But again, it's it arises in a very specific context. It's not a neutral term. It's it's meant to be a political framing. That was Chris Bedell. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with business people, policymakers, and experts around the world. The relationship between the world's two biggest economies, the United States and China, is in terrible shape. Washington and Beijing have conflicting views of the world. The discord impacts everything from global asset prices to capital allocations to the outlook for long-term growth. Countries, businesses, and investors are busy weighing up how the current tensions and any escalation, including a possible war over Taiwan, will impact them. I'm Yuna Galani, Asia Editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. In this episode of The Exchange, I sat down with Chris Bedell, Deputy China Research Director at GavCal, a Hong Kong-based financial services company. Welcome to The Exchange, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you here. We loved working with you when you were a columnist on our team. And so we are really thrilled to have you back here. Great. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Well, I think we could probably start with a really easy question. What's the right word to use here to describe the U.S.'s evolving relationship with China? Is it decoupling? de-risking, or is it trying to contain this $18 trillion economy? It's You say it's an easy question, but it's actually a very, uh, very complex one in the sense that the terms are very loaded <laughs> and they have their own unique, each one arose in a different context. So just very quickly, if we rewind to decoupling, uh, that really came about around the time roughly the time that the U.S.-China trade war started, so roughly 2018-ish, give or take a year. The biggest proponents of it are Trump administration officials who want to decrease trade with China, so Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, and so forth. And it was always a little bit unclear what the exact content of that was or what the goal was, um, but it's a political slogan. And it contrasts with de-risking, which is a much more recent term, Uh, It starts in European policy circles and then gets imported into the Biden administration. Um, There's lots of reasons for that around maintaining sort of coalitional unity, the United States and Europe against China. Uh, But it it basically infers that decoupling across the board is not realistic. It's not really desirable. Instead, we will target a few areas of specific concern. Now, what exactly the definition of risk is can clearly expand over time. So it's also quite fuzzy. And then finally, containment, that is China's framing. It obviously harkens to the Cold War, uh, which a lot of third countries, especially in the developing world, do not want to hear. Um, it sounds very aggressive and mean. And, you know, I don't mean to be dismissive. I think in some ways it's actually quite accurate. Um, but again, it's it arises in a very specific context. It's not a neutral term. It's it's meant to be a political framing. So uh, the answer to your question, though, is I think I will stick with decoupling uh, simply because it's the original term. And like the original term, I'll sort of leave it a little bit ambiguous as to what exactly that means. 
Well, that's fantastic because I was given a warning before recording this podcast that I shouldn't use the word decoupling too much. But actually, now you've given me reason to stick with it. And it's very hard to have a discussion about this without using that word at all. So um, so that is very, very helpful. I mean, obviously, uh, we can sit here and list all the reasons why the US and China should cooperate on many things from, you know, reasons for mitigating climate change to ensuring global financial stability to avoiding mutually assured destruction through nuclear weapons. But, you know, it's quite clear, as you say, that things are going in the other direction. But it's also a vast topic. I mean, when you cut through the noise and you look at the numbers, as as, as we like to do as financial journalists, I mean, how much decoupling or de-risking is really happening? I mean, how do you start to go about breaking down this vast subject? Yeah, as as you note, it's a complex topic. It involves a lot of different areas. So you could talk about trade decoupling. You could talk about financial decoupling. You could talk about um, science and technology decoupling. I think maybe what I'll do to stick with some of the numbers is I'll stick with trade decoupling because I think that was the original intent, right, when people talked about decoupling. So, um, here it's uh, it depends on how you how you look at the data. So on one level, uh, decoupling has not worked in the sense that it's not like U.S. imports from China are half of what they were when the trade war started in 2018 or trending massively downward, at least in absolute terms. They're still very, very high. Um, and you know, China's total exports, for what it's worth, have risen massively since the U.S.-China trade war started. Uh, much of that is simply because of the pandemic. There was this big shift from purchasing services to purchasing goods because people are locked at home. So they're buying whatever home exercise equipment and that um, in some way, shape or form comes from China, et cetera. So uh, China's China's exports actually go from about 2.5 trillion around the time that uh, the U.S.-China trade war breaks out to something like 3.6 trillion now, which is just just an incredible increase. So on one level, you say that the decoupling hasn't really worked in that sense. There has been no decoupling. But uh, another way to look at it is to say, OK, what share of America's total imports are coming from China? And there we see a different picture. So it depends a little bit on kind of how you look at the data. You have to smooth it because of seasonality. But but basically, the share of stuff of all stuff that China is that the United States is purchasing abroad is coming from China about, you know, peaks at about 22% or so, uh, 21, 22% before the uh, the trade war. It's now down to like 16, 17%. Again, it depends a little bit on how you slice the data, but it's pretty clear that China's market share has declined. Um, now, unfortunately, that's, that's still not quite a straight answer because, um, you know, we could talk all day about this. There's some objection to that. So, for example, uh, the, the amount that the United States that says that China is sending to it is not the same as the amount that China says it is sending to the United States. Uh, that gap is, I mean, it's its pretty normal in global trade, but like it is not trivial. And the Chinese data tell a, a bit of a different story. Um, there's also the issue of, uh, well, what if there was trade diversion or transshipment? So some of that trade that is now coming from say Vietnam is actually just disguised Chinese trade. That's definitely a possibility. And then there's kind of this macro theoretical objection, which is that, well, it's misleading to look at even the U.S.-China relationship. You kind of have to look at global trade in the sense that maybe China's trade with the rest of the world is, is enabling it to trade more with the United States. So I take all those points, but to sort of boil it down, I would say 
in again in the original sense of we are going to wean ourselves off uh we american officials are going to wean the united states off trade with china and it is going to decrease substantially in absolute terms and it is going to stay low that has clearly not happened but on the other hand there really was a sort of trajectory towards closer trade relations that was happening before the us china trade war if the intent of decoupling was to really just knock that trajectory sideways, maybe even dial it back a bit, especially in some key areas where they slapped on the, the harshest tariffs. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, it, I mean, the, the trade war had a, a big impact. You can see it in the data. So interesting. So like absolute numbers are up, but in terms of the trajectory, that's definitely changed. And as you say, we need to sort of drill down into the details in some of those countries, uh, the country sort of level stuff. But I mean, when you sort of step back and you think that China's manufacturing value added is roughly equal to the United States and Europe combined, that's vast. I mean, which industries can really effectively and realistically de decouple from China and which ones cannot? Yeah, so I think that some areas where you, you have started to see trade divert away from China towards other countries, you know, things like clothing, things, things like back-end IT equipment, um, servers, modems, routers, that kind of thing. But I think where the focus now is really on where in the technology realm can the US decouple itself from Chinese trade? And so you might've heard there is this new uh, sort of slogan going around, it's called a, a small yard and a high fence. And basically what it means, uh, my colleagues here at Gap Calgary Economics have, have done a lot of fantastic research on this. And, and basically what they have found is that it means the United States will impose restrictions on some forms of technology but it will be very circumscribed to only some sophisticated types of technology that have a military application, but it will be genuinely hard constraints. It will be very difficult for China to get those technologies. So what specifically are we talking about? We're talking about advanced semiconductor chips. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about quantum computing, but then you look at other technologies. So let's say maybe not the most cutting edge chips, but sort of legacy chips, the kind of stuff that you would put into like home appliances. Uh, what if we're talking about biotechnology? What if we're talking about clean energy? It seems like there's been a bit of a shift in the US position, I think on this, uh, but it, it, it seems like basically those things are not really quite as desirable for the US to decouple. And the administration has made that clear. So you know, first you run into the issue of like, what exactly are we doing here? Why are we blind, blocking this technology? The, the security case is a lot weaker for those than they are for, you know, cutting edge quantum computing. You also run into the issue of if you do that, you will start to, it will come at a cost. You will alienate some allies in Europe, in Asia, and you need those allies to cut China off from the stuff that you really want to cut it off from. So the advanced semiconductor equipment. There's also the issue that the, the structure of those industries is different. There's not the same choke points like you have in semiconductors where you've got TSMC, you've got Samsung that are really, I mean, you could you could surgically go in to, to target those firms. And then finally, uh, for, for something like clean energy, it's really about like, what is the cost? So like, if you have uh, these goals of decarbonization, of various climate change goals, you're pouring a lot of money into it with the IRA, China is a big part of a lot of that technology, of a lot of that clean tech. And if you are going to 
remove China from those supply chains, you can do it, but it is going to be tremendously costly. Uh, you might not achieve your separate climate goals. And again, it just goes back to the question of what, like, what are you trying to accomplish here? What, what exactly are we doing? So, so it's really a question of, yes, you can decouple. You, you can decouple nearly, not everywhere, but nearly as many areas as you can think of. But the question is what cost? And it seems like the administration is settling on, okay, we're going to really laser focus on a few areas of very specific concern to us. Right. But I mean, you know, to what extent, I think you sort of allude to this a little bit, but to what extent is this all really smoke and mirrors, right? So on the one hand, you've got some sort of supply chain shifting around and stuff, but is this really just diversification of supply chains? You know, you're just adding an intermediate step between China and the US without actually reducing the ultimate US dependence on China. So for example, like India will export more iPhones, but they will be made from Chinese parts and they will be more expensive for consumers or less profitable for the companies that are making them. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of different factors in here. The first is that there's an argument that if you are, for some of these industries, if you are diversifying supply chains away from China and if you are, if you, the United States, are now purchasing from a factory in Vietnam as opposed to a factory from China, but that factory in Vietnam is just sourcing its intermediate goods, it's importing them from China, have you really reduced your reliance in sort of a meaningful way on China? Maybe you've not. And there's sort of an irony here that you know, the Chinese have been debating this for like a long time when it comes to high-tech equipment and the idea that they want these autonomous and controllable supply chains. But like, what does that mean? Like we can't manufacture an entire semiconductor chip from very start to finish entirely in China. That's just not plausible. I, I mean, how would you, for batteries, for semiconductors, you need to get the graphite, the lithium, the cobalt from, from abroad. So it's just not, there's been plenty of objections within the Chinese political system that that is not feasible and we will still remain exposed to a certain degree. So I, I think that's the case. Um, there's also another issue here that, you know, Chinese firms, there is a degree of, of trade diversion where Chinese firms just sort of um, set up shop abroad in Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia. Uh, that's been happening. That's most clear in terms of especially solar photovoltaics. That's been going on for you know, a decade plus now at this point. So yeah, that's another uh, pattern that we have to see in the data, which is that there is there is definitely some degree of trade diversion. Again, I don't think it explains the full thing, but it definitely does happen. Yeah, I mean, I was just in Singapore and the big chatter over there is sort of this, as you say, this big arrival of Chinese money and manufacturers plowing into the region from Indonesia to Thailand. I mean, it's a little bit difficult to unpick because how much of that is a reaction to the sanctions threat versus a migration that would have naturally occurred because of labor costs and, you know, uh, the fact, yeah, relative labor costs, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's it's a mixture of both and it's sort of hard to disentangle them at a certain point. So uh, like one of the big stories is mobile phone manufacturing in India right now and specifically the migration of Apple's Taiwanese contractors from China setting up shop in India. Um, so you think of like Foxconn, Pegatron setting up in Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, that's a classic case where it's driven by both factors. So labor in China is becoming expensive. Uh, labor in India is considerably cheaper at this point. 
And it's also driven by geopolitical concerns that there is a desire within Apple to start diversifying the supply chains. That said, I think it's it really is both. Like it's not, you know, you would have talked about this topic 10 years ago and it would have been it would have focused primarily on the issue of rising labor costs in China. But I think it's now pretty well established that China is extremely competitive when it comes to manufacturing and it will remain competitive. So, for instance, um, you know, I just talked about the rising labor costs, but labor in China is, is very productive, actually. So what you get is that some of these Taiwanese manufacturers go to India and their labor costs are, say, half of what they are in China. But the productivity is also half of what it is in China. Um, so you're not really saving a tremendous amount. And also the logistics in India are still, I mean, they're clearly improving, but they're not what China is by any means. They don't have the ecosystem of vendors and suppliers that China has. So in reality, you add all those costs up and it might be that production costs are still, you know, slightly higher in India than in China, or at least that's what, that's what we're hearing from uh, some of these um, manufacturers. But again, the, the geopolitical concerns, you know, you might look at that and you might say, well, okay, it cost me 10% more to manufacture in India, but that's that's a price we're going to pay because it's it's basically insurance for deteriorating U.S.-China relations in the future. Yeah, it does feel like we're a long way away from that sort of efficiency on par, being able to match China. I mean, there are some really crazy stories, you know, when if you have one in every two goods coming off the supply chain and they're not usable, then it's a really false economy. And I guess this is this comes back to sort of idea I think you've talked about before, but it's sort of like politics really trumping economics uh, at this moment of time. When you um when you step back and you look at sort of all these changes that are happening, I mean, do you think this decoupling or de-risking, whatever you want to call it, containment, is it something cyclical or is it a permanent structural adjustment? that we are seeing, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, I lean more permanent than cyclical. There clearly is some degree of cyclical component. Um, so I think you see it in the Biden administration is is clearly trying to sort of um, put a pause on escalating hostilities at this point. Um, so we might be in part of that cycle. Um, it might improve marginally over the coming months um, as you get more cabinet level interactions, um, maybe a, a Biden-Xi meeting. but. You got to take a step back and you say, where were we 10 years ago versus now? Sort of like this this long term, besides the sort of day to day, month to month wiggles of our U.S.-China relations improving or or, um, or deteriorating. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's so cliche to say, but it's true that there is a bipartisan consensus in the U.S. now on this issue. You think about what was where we are now versus where we are, where we were during the late Obama administration, where you had U.S.-China officials were trying to work on a bilateral investment treaty. There was a significant political constituency, uh, namely in the form of business, that wanted closer ties with China. They wanted some uh, market changes in China, but they basically wanted closer U.S.-China ties. They had a very specific agenda of things that they thought the administration should push for. And you generally had this push towards greater economic and political linkages. That is essentially totally gone now. That is, it feels like the Paleolithic era when we look back at it at this point. And I think you know one of the most important and underrated things that happened was the hawks during the Trump administration really did succeed in shifting the discourse in the United States towards their preferred direction. And I think they correctly judged that policy is sort of downstream from that discussion. 
And I think that they're they're basically continuing that today. So you look at like the U.S. House Select Committee on China. It really does not have a, a ton of powers uh, per se, but part of its function is to keep pushing that discourse. And I think they're actually quite successful in it. And now I should say at the same time, very briefly, but I also don't want to give them too much credit uh, because, you know, things also changed in China over that same period. Right. And on the Chinese side, you had the rise, especially in 2020, of something called dual circulation. Xi Jinping raises it around April, May of that year, and he later says in his telling that he was touring Zhejiang province during the early days of the pandemic, and he saw the disruptions that the pandemic was causing to global trade, and he internalized that this previous model that China had, that they would import a ton of intermediate goods, they would assemble it, and then they would export it, that can no longer continue. And so this great international circulation, as it was called, that model is going to go by the wayside. Instead, we are going to build up the domestic market. We are going to reduce our dependency on the on basically the great world. We're going to minimize the amount of essentially target that we present to the United States. And we are going to build up this kind of internal circulation of production and then consumption. And we will still participate in this other global circulation. So that's where you get the dual circulation. But we're going to emphasize that this is a much more domestic economy now. You can argue about whether that's actually happened in practice, but that is that is a direction. And I don't see that aspect changing either. So I think it's more permanent than cyclical. Yeah, when we um, when we talk to the sort of global pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds, it very much feel structural. Obviously, they I mean, this is uh, in terms of the financials and the investments. I mean, obviously, I think if China's monetary policy changes, if it starts to stimulate uh, the economy more aggressively, then we never know people might pile back in. But, you know, at the moment, they're really at like a structural low in terms of their allocations over the last 10 years. I mean, it's very, very low. And, you know, if, if if they were sort of more bullish on China, this is a time they should be leaning into China. China is a middle income country on the cusp of high income. So, you know, it feels it feels um, structural from from where we, we we're sitting. I mean, do you see any of those financial flows coming back? And do you think that a change of the U.S. administration, perhaps next year, could reverse any of the decoupling we've seen or could that make a difference? Yeah, so I think on the topic of portfolio capital flows, um, so as opposed to, say, foreign direct investment, and I make the distinction because I think a lot of multinationals, I mean, if you look at the data on their their sales, their direct sales in China, the sales of their affiliates, it's actually way more than exports to China, and uh, they're they're very much invested. They, they kind of don't have a lot of option. They have to be in China. But if you look at portfolio flows, so like the pension funds, uh, hedge funds, and so forth, they obviously do have the option. And they clearly, to some extent, at least equity investors, got spooked by a lot of the policy changes and just policy in general, including zero COVID policy last year, and they pulled out. And I think that they are still, uh, you know, we did see a reopening rally. We saw some of them come back to take advantage of that rally, especially in Q4 of last year, to some extent in Q1 of this year. But I think they're still very much on the fence. I think a lot of questions very profound questions that they have about policy are still outstanding. So I think that, you know, the the immediate thing that would draw them back in is if Chinese equity markets started surging again. But for that, for that, you really need domestic retail investors in China to really get back into the game. 
And they have so far been basically sitting on the sidelines, at least so far. So um, that might change, uh, say, if they if those domestic retail investors decide, you know, I want to move my money from my bank deposit account right now to to go into equities and the stock market starts surging in H2, uh, some of the foreign funds might come back. As to your discussion about, you know, a change in administration, well, if it was a change in administration, if it was not if it was not Biden after 2024, if it was a Republican administration, I definitely don't think that there would be any massive improvement. I, I think the question around Taiwan would start to come up. Uh, we actually, as a, as a firm, we don't think that this is a very high probability of a, you know, a serious conflict over Taiwan. I don't think that the the Chinese administration have, feels any kind of special compunction to take action, at least right now. But if there was a Republican administration, I, I do think that the son of sort of conan of uncertainty around U.S. policy toward Taiwan would increase. And that really, for me, would be the risk, um, because I, I I feel sort of confident about the Chinese policy stance towards Taiwan. I don't feel quite as confident if they sense that the U.S. stance is changing and that, therefore, they must react and they cannot just sit idly by while the U.S. just develops these kind of de facto normalized relations with Taiwan. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, you mentioned sort of the portfolio flows. When I think about the financial flows, and I'm really interested in private equity, and and I find that's a really interesting financial flow, because when you sort of give money to a private equity fund in China, you are sort of effectively, well, that's going to invest in China, you're effectively giving your money for five, seven, ten years. And so you've got to really be like sure about the direction. And that's where we've really, really seen commitments sort of fall off a cliff. And so it's sort of like, you know, in terms of how people, I mean, obviously there's a lot of dry powder sitting around in these big uh, global private equity funds, including money that's allocated to China, but that's a global thing. But the fundraising like allocations to China have really, really, really dropped off. So yeah, you're right. Like it could change and the equity inflows could come back overnight, but it feels like the long-term money is sort of following a little bit this longer term trajectory that you're outlining in terms of like the political direction. I guess the big thing here that's always mystifying to me is really China's position on all of this. A lot of this is US led. And and it goes back to that sort of idea of like whether the word containment is or isn't fair. But what kind of retaliation can we expect from China if the US continues to turn up the heat on on things, including like the technology bans, for example? Like, is what they have done with Micron, is that a blueprint for future action and and why haven't they really hit back harder until now given all the leverage they have in terms of you know they make something like 90% of the world's solar wafer panels they are the leading processor of rare earths for batteries they make most of the world's active pharmaceutical ingredients if they pushed back it would be really really scary oh absolutely i this is really sort of one of the key questions outstanding so if you take a step back i think you you really hit a, the nail on the head there so it's there's sort of a puzzle here. So China has a few classic retaliatory weapons in its arsenal. One is blocking imports, sometimes exports. So the classic example is, you know, we we Chinese customs officials have found some otherwise obscure biosafety issue that's sort of vague and we won't go into detail about with your agricultural exports to China. And so we are suspending shipments or we are holding them up for health and safety inspections for so long that the um, the goods are going bad, and uh, you are now going to lose a lot of money because of that. Or sometimes, you know, it's holding up exports, maybe rare to Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one. Uh, that's a you know countless times they've used that. 
The second one is they can select an individual company from a certain country for punishment. So the poster child here is Lotte Group, South Korea, when South Korea agreed to deploy THAAD missile weapon systems. And they basically, Lotte Group was, was essentially forced out of, out of China. There are many, many other you know, weapons that they have in the arsenal. But the striking thing, as you allude to, is that the U.S., you consider the U.S.-China trade war, you consider everything that they've done against Huawei, everything that they've done against Chinese tech firms. And yet, China has not really done any of that. Instead, what they've done is a, a much more formal process of tit-for-tat retaliatory measures. So you impose a tariff on us, we impose a tariff on you. But we don't impose more than that. So the idea is, just like any tit-for-tat game, it's we are going to impose pain so that we disincentivize you from escalating, but we ourselves are not going to escalate. There were a few exceptions here and there. So um, one of them was the Boeing 737 MAX and its use in China, um, and, and generally a shift from Boeing to Airbus in recent years. Another one is the holdup of, you know, they have the power to hold up merger and, uh, merger and acquisition approvals. So Qualcomm NXP back in 2018. So, so there are some exceptions, but I think by and large, again, when you consider in their view, the crimes that the United States has committed against them, this is pretty, pretty small potatoes, right? So we always thought that the calculus there was basically that they knew that American companies, multinational companies based in China, were already a little bit leery about China for many other reasons, geopolitical, but, but also policy related in China. And that as soon as you start selective retaliation against one of those American businesses, specifically because it is American, uh, there would be a rush for the exits. And in the long term, that would probably hurt China more than it helped. So the question is whether that calculation is now shifting. It goes back to your question about, you know, is this permanent or cyclical? Because the degree to which you think, if you are a Chinese policymaker, that there is really no prospect for sustained, uh, meaningful improvement in U.S.-China relations, maybe that does, you know, maybe there is a little bit less disincentive, if that makes sense, to retaliate against an American firm now. So that was really the question hanging over Micron. But that said, uh, Micron is a very unique case in China. It has been abundantly clear for years that Chinese officials uh, have a bit of a, that the company has a bit of a target on its back in China. Uh, I think I think it's probably safe to say that they know this. And you also look at the list of companies like Micron, and it's actually fairly short. So. At the same time, uh, you know, I think that China is pushing back very, very cautiously. I think there's reason to think that they will continue to be quite cautious in that pushback. But at the same time, yeah, I, I think it is clear that the deterioration of U.S.-China relations has has impacted their calculation on that front. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because you have to, I mean, obviously the, the, there's a sort of broad level stuff they're doing, which is sort of cracking down on the export of tech related to solar panels and that sort of uh, rare earth sort of like slowly sort of making the exports that harder. Uh, but that's sort of that stuff that applies to everybody. And then you sort of say, oh, well, Micron's an exception. But it's interesting because people, the, the exceptions are piling up. You know, I think it was the first time the cybersecurity body has targeted a foreign firm when they uh, went after Micron. But then since then, obviously, we've had the crackdown on the due diligence investigators, Mintz and Bain included. So, and then at the same time, of course, you've got these, uh, you've got the red carpet literally being rolled out for Elon Musk and Tesla when, you know, when he arrives in China. So you're definitely getting these really mixed 
signals and I think that's really hard to reconcile I mean how do you just my final question I guess is like how do you reconcile those mixed signals well I think to some extent the mixed signals are sort of an inherent feature of the Chinese government because I think what they want is you know, it's a Leninist system and it operates by uh, the, the uppermost layer, including Xi, including the Politburo, will send out some sort of vague slogan or guidance on what they want. And then if you are a lower level regulator at a ministry or a local government in China, it is incumbent on you to um, figure out what the leadership wants and then to implement it and formulate policy in your own. And inevitably, there are going to be discrepancies because a lot of times what the leadership is calling for is like a balance between two things. And I think that that's partly what you see, what you see now with respect to foreign companies. It's also what you, you've seen um, many, many times uh, with respect to Chinese companies domestically, which is that one arm of the government is acting in a way that seems totally incoherent with another arm of the government. So one arm of the government, just as you said, is rolling out the red carpet. The other arm of the government is cracking down on uh, select foreign firms, uh, maybe for totally idiosyncratic or unrelated reasons. But it's a feature of the Chinese system that it's it's sort of decentralized in that respect. And again, we've seen that t basically time and again. Um, if you invest in Chinese market markets, you've seen this, where uh, one regulator comes out and says, or seems to imply that some action is good and okay. And then another regulator, or maybe the, the security services or wh whomever uh, comes out and basically cracks down on the, the exact same thing. And then only later does it get escalated up the chain of command and someone at the very uppermost level must kind of instill some sort of coherency and reason to this. So again, I would I would attribute that as much as anything to what's happening. Just one arm of the government sometimes does not know what the other arm of the government is doing. Well, thanks, Chris, for illuminating us on one of the hottest topics in global finance and indeed politics. A real, real pleasure to have you here. And I know you're dialing in from Beijing. So thank you for taking the time out. Thank you for having me. This is a great conversation. Thanks for tuning into The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple or your favourite podcast app. Also check out our sister podcast, The Views Room, and check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.